Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And so I, I think we try to empower the jury by letting them see sort of that the conduct is still going on without exactly saying that because we aren't allowed to. Please rise. Court is now in session. Well, welcome, everybody, to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, this is Steve Lowry, and I'm here with uh, my fabulous co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. How are you doing, Yvonne? I'm good, although I guess you're, you're here with me, but you're not here with me because you're in Denver. I know. This is the first time that we're working through technology so that we're uh, not actually in the same room, and I'm sitting in my hotel room and couldn't find my uh, Do Not Disturb sign for a long time, so I was afraid that, you know, room service was going to come in, and, or not room service, but the maid service was going to come in in the middle of our interview. <laughs> That's okay. We'd have another guest host. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, today we have a, 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 a very fascinating trial uh, that happened down in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, it involves uh, the cases against the tobacco companies and something that's known as the Ingle Progeny Cases. Um, and uh, our guest today is uh, Laura Champ, and Laura is a, a partner at Champ Jordan and Woodward in uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, Laura, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Laura, just to uh, give you a little, give our listeners a little bit of background about you and, and your experience. I uh, see here that you went to a little-known law school known as Harvard. I think people have heard of that. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and not only did you get your law degree there, but you got your master's degree in public health from Harvard as well. I went back and got that in 2004, I did. Fantastic. And then, uh, and then I heard a rumor that you, uh, were you on a Final Four basketball team? I, I am. I was, but it was Division Two, so and not, not the big girls. But when I, um, I'm from Georgia and went to my undergraduate at Mercer University and went there on a basketball scholarship and uh, played four years of basketball before I headed off to the Northeast to go to law school. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I still think any Final Four, no matter what division you're in, <laughs> fantastic. Totally. It felt good to us, yes. Yeah. That's I mean, right. I played Division Three volleyball, and we never even made it to the NCAA tournament. So <laughs> <laughs> top Final Four Division Two is pretty impressive to me. And uh, I played zero sports in, uh, in college, but uh, I tell you, my our intramural team was pretty good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the case that we're here to talk about is uh, is called Jordan versus Philip Morris, and it's part of the Ingle progeny case progeny cases. And I'm going to have Laura talk about that in a second here. Uh, but I'll give just a little bit of background. And Laura, if I mess anything up, uh, please correct me. Um, but my understanding is that uh, you represented Elaine Jordan, who was a uh, essentially a lifelong smoker who had started smoking when she was 14 years old, uh, which was 1963, and became addicted. And she struggled over the years with addiction, tried to quit several times, wasn't able to. And in the 1990s, around uh, 1993 or so, she got uh, diagnosed with uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, COPD, uh, as well as emphysema and then uh, ultimately had two lung transplants uh, because of that, and then uh, had a uh, kidney transplant, or, or at least was on the list for a kidney transplant uh, as well. 
And, um, and so this case was a case against the tobacco manufacturers, against Philip Morris specifically, um, and was known as an, an Ingle progeny case. So Laura, can you give us a little background on what exactly is an Ingle progeny case? Sure. Um, so, you know, people have been trying to bring cases against tobacco companies for years, for decades. And in 1996, a um, lawyer in Florida brought a class brought a class action on behalf of a guy named Dr. Engel. He was actually a, a medical doctor. And that case survived the class mem the uh, class certification process and was actually tried in front of a jury. It took a year for that trial to happen. And at the end, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think the award was billions of dollars that the jury awarded for the class. That worked its way all the way up through the Florida court system, up to the Florida Supreme Court. And the Florida Supreme Court held that, it, that the case could maintain its class action status, but not as to class membership and as to damages. And so the court gave, the Supreme Court gave every smoker in Florida one year to file an individual action as a result of uh, smoking-related diseases. And so 8,000 cases were filed across the state of Florida. And slowly but surely, those cases have been working their way to trial and gone all the way up in many, many, many Court of Appeals and Supreme Court decisions about it. But essentially, there are some findings from that original class action, that original trial, that are race judicata and that you get to use in the Engle individual trials. And so that was, it's one of them. And some of those findings, as I understood, uh, was essentially the findings of causation and addiction or and then uh, the defendant's misconduct but but you had to prove that you fell within that class of injuries and whether or not your client was addicted and then the injuries were caused by addiction is that right right so the very first question on the jury verdict form is is your um was your client a member of the ingle class and so the most of the trial is about deciding that because once that's decided only when that's decided do you get the benefit of the findings and the findings are just they're really really hard for the defendants they are that the defendants lied that they that they made a that the product is defectively designed um that it causes cancer just lots of good findings that it's very hard for them to recover from if if we're a member of the class but you know and, and when from a trial lawyer standpoint when you get a case like that and you hear that you've got defendants misconduct is, uh, you know, already established and the product is defective and it causes cancer. I mean, it sounds like a great case, but in reading the trial transcript, transcript, uh, Philip Morris here did not just roll over and agree to any of that. I mean, it sounded like you guys tried this case for several weeks. It was, it was a three week trial. And what we, what we quickly learn is that some people just don't believe that anyone should sue the tobacco companies. And so we have that, that real bias when we walk in the courtroom that, that a large percentage of the jury thinks these are ridiculous cases. Right. And so that's a big part of Vordire is to try and sort out those people who are even going to be willing to listen to this type of case. Because essentially there's a bias now, especially among anybody who was born, you know, after there were already warning labels on cigarette uh, packages that everybody knows it causes cancer. So how did your client not know that? And that they, it was their own choice to smoke and, and, and therefore it's their own fault that they got this disease. 
You know, that was something that I found really uh, fascinating about this is that, you know, these cases, it's just like you said, I mean, I, you know, growing up, you know, I had family members who smoked and, you know, it always, uh, you know, sort of known, you know, don't smoke because it's bad for you. So I always thought that the, you know, jury bias in cases like this would be really, really tough. So what drew you to Miss Miss Jordan's case? Well, her case was a, a very, very good example of, of the kind of cases that can be successful. One is she started smoking before there were warning labels on the packages. That's key. She started smoking when she was very young. That's also key. Um, and so she also had certain life experiences that really played into our narrative very well. And including that she was, when she was constant, she was, she really tried to quit and tried many, many times to quit. And she had a lot of addiction in her family. And we were able to bring in experts to tie sort of the genetic component of addiction and how she's fighting a harder battle. And then, of course, we brought in the statistics about nicotine addiction and how difficult it is to quit. But you have to in, first get a, a jury that's willing to listen to those things. And, and then we also spent a lot of time in the trial showing the jury how things were back then. We do a lot of videos. We do a lot of the um, commercials, advertisements, because that breaks up the you know, boringness of testimony. But we right. show commercials from back then where doctors are advertising cigarettes. We show, you know, Lucia Ball, Lucille Ball, you know, advertising cigarettes with uh, Desi Arnaz um, and just stuff that people, when they see it, they're surprised. There's a Flintstone commercials where Fred Flintstone is advertising um, Winston cigarettes. So we're able to use some of those to try and let the jury say it wasn't like it is now back then. Uh, yeah. Related to that, Laura, when you're, when you're talking about finding a, a jury that's going to listen, were you... How did you handle smoking with the jury as far as like during jury selection? So we get a huge jury panel because we know that there are so many people who are going to have very strong feelings about it either way. In Florida, you only have a six person jury and we start with a veneer of 120. And the very first question, and, and we've, you know, when I say we, and you know, my team that's been working on it, the very first question I stand up and ask is how many people think these are stupid lawsuits? And everybody that raises their hands, I get offer calls. Right. You know, it takes a few questions, but, you know, you, you, you move then. And so you – and then what you try and do is everybody's got smoking in their family, but you try and get a commitment from the people who remain that this isn't about your smoking history. This isn't about your experiences. This isn't about your family. Can you put those things aside? Because what the defendants want to do in their voir dire is to say, did anybody make you smoke? Did anybody make your brother? And everybody in the jury will always say no. And they'll always say advertising had nothing to do with it, which we all know is not true. But I try and get the, the in my voir dire, try and get a commitment from the jurors that they will uh, not use their own smoking history as a, but it's a, I mean, smoking people have very, very strong feelings, both sides. There are people who say, you know, it killed my mother, it killed my father, it killed my uncle, it killed my, and, you know, people cry and were there about it um, on both sides. Wow. Yeah. That's what I was wondering is, I mean, do you want to, do you want 
a smoker? Do you not want a smoker? And then I never want a smoker. I, okay. we, I, and, and some people say it, they're all right. I have had one jury, one, one jury in that I had had a smoker on and we still got a verdict, but no, I will I definitely do not want a smoker on mine because when you're faced with your own addiction, I think sometimes it's very hard to blame someone else for your own addiction because you're always saying, I can quit anytime I want which is what most addicted people say. So we definitely try not to, to keep smokers on, but, but they are not, they're not automatically off for cause or anything. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So, and then, I mean, I imagine part of the evidence you have, and, and we'll talk about this more as we get into it, uh, but yeah, I mean, when they have commercials like the Flintstones uh, smoking, I mean, obviously that's got to be geared towards getting children to start smoking. I mean, and the only people who watch cartoons, you know, especially back then, are children. Right. And, and that's a big part of our, um, it's, it's always a hot button that we, we, you know, definitely see amongst the jury is that, you know, advertising to adults is one thing, but advertising to children. And we had very, very good, we have very, very good documents from Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds where they intentionally are marketing to young children. And they say that in these documents that have now, you know, after these years and years of litigation, these documents have been made public. And, you know, they say are marketing towards 13-year-olds. One, one, one great document says is we've started to look at middle school's books to just find good marketing themes for them. And, and one, one, one that says we, we like labels, you know, warning labels while that was being discussed might not be a bad thing because we want chil children like to rebel. Right. And, so, so, and just wow. really, really terrible stuff when they knew that, that, the, that their product was both addictive and cancer causing. So they actually used, took the warning labels and used that as a, as a marketing item, a marketing ploy that if you want to rebel, you start smoking? Right. And the, the idea being, and, and they would say this, we, we want, you know, there's a little bad boy image of it that, that appeals to teenagers. And the, the vast majority of the, liter the science shows that um, most people start smoking before the age of 18, almost all. I mean, almost all before the age of 18 and most before the age of 16. Wow. And then we put on evidence about how, what that does to the brain uh, using an addictive substance before the brain is fully developed increases the risk of addiction because it creates stronger pathways. And we put up all that kind of evidence so that the jury really understands when we start talking about marketing to teenagers, marketing to, to adolescents, how that ties in to our case. And, and again, going back to Elaine Jordan, because she smoked at 14, all of that testimony is relevant because she was herself a young teenager. So all of that testimony gets to come in. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked. No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, 
or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services you can talk to bob melanie or anyone else on their team they are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com that's ltsatlanta.com well and i should say before we get too far into this is that this trial um, resulted in an 11 million dollar verdict over seven million dollars in compensatory damages uh, to Miss Jordan, and then over a $3 million award in punitive damages for a total of $11 million. So yeah. obviously, uh, Laura, you and your team did a fantastic job of uh, telling the story and telling, uh, you know, the conduct of the, um, of the cigarette companies in, um, in, in getting them to um, give you that kind of an award. Um, one of the things I, I noticed is it, looked, it looks like there was some apportionment. So um, how did you handle the, you know, the fact that there probably was some blame on your client? Did you accept some blame or did you just allow the defense to sort of push that issue? Well, great news in Florida. If you have, a, you can have apportionment, but if the jury finds that the torts were intentional, then the apportionment does not apply. Oh, wow. So we got all 11 million. So because they found that it was an intentional tort. Um, but the answer to your question is, obviously, when I'm presenting it to the jury, we do accept we do accept some blame. Um, and but we, we talk about what that notion is, is comparative fault. Compare what she is 14 years old, what her fault is compared to what they did. And then you you uh, pile it on and pile it on. So the jury did, you know, they did apportion 40% to her, but under the law in Florida, that does not apply because they found it to be an intentional tort. Okay. Okay. And then, and then as far as, is the jury told that during the uh, jury charges? That, no. Okay. So it's just a the jury. What the, what the jury is told is, is that it will, it says something along the lines of this will be apportioned if the court deems it appropriate. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I, I, I mean, like I said, I mean, the, the story here is uh, really compelling, especially when you uh, sort of walk through the timeline of what the um, tobacco companies knew and then what they did with that knowledge. But as far as an approach to the trial, um, what, how are you trying to theme the case and, and, and approach it, you know, for the jury to really understand the case against the tobacco companies? Well, this is very interesting because oftentimes as plaintiff's lawyers, we're taught, we think about, we talk about our focus always on the defendant's conduct, right? We want to focus on the defendant's conduct. And we have found that in the tobacco cases, everybody pretty much accepts that these defendants are awful, right? And, and, when we tell them that they're awful, they agree, they believe it. But we had to really have to focus on our client 
and how that conduct impacted our client. And that's the real teasing it out. If we just walk in and say the defendants are terrible to award our client money, you're not going to win that case. You have, we really have to craft our story so that their stories intertwine is how I try and, and explain it. So that, for example, when they're marketing to children, I try and put those advertisements up and say, and Elaine Jordan's 13. These, these are marketing at the time when she is seeing them. And then there's a lot of uh, discussion in the case about um, low-tar cigarettes. There's a whole fallacy that, that the industry came up with that we would market things as low-tar. And what they knew and what we now know is there is no such thing. That, and now, of course, it's, it's outlawed. They, can't, they cannot market something as low-tar any longer. That's against the advertising regulations. But they, and they knew it wasn't because people compensate. And so we put on that evidence, and then we showed that Elaine switched from regular to low tar. Right. And, and we tied that in. And so I believe that the success of the case came from the jury, one, sort of seeing how their conduct impacted this human, this person, this one you know, person, this one family. And then the other thing we wanted to do was to make it feel relevant to them, make it feel relevant to the jury. And one, because if this was all about conduct that happened in the 1950s and 1960s, even the 1970s, why does this jury care? And so what we tried to do was make it feel relevant to them by showing ways in which they're still doing it. They're still, and, and, and really ties beautifully because they defend these cases as if, you know, nothing that they did impacted this this person. So you're able to present sort of a story where they're still denying it, right. right? They're still denying it. They're still even, they'll say, yeah, yes, yes, it's addictive, but she's not addicted. Yes, 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 it causes cancer, but it didn't cause her cancer. Yeah, yeah. So it's, we were able to make it feel relevant, I think, by trying to un teach the jury that this is they had to do something because they're still doing it. And so I, I think we try to empower the jury by letting them see sort of that the conduct is still going on without exactly saying that because we aren't allowed to. Yeah. And, you know, there was two sort of overall takeaway points that I took from this that I, I thought you did a particularly great job. in. one was you, you just spoke about it. Some was the use of the timeline of conduct and it was sort of the timeline of the defense's conduct and then putting that against, you know, Elaine's conduct. Um, and, and you sort of walked through, you know, that when, when uh, tobacco companies first knew that, that there was a link to cancer and then what did they do about that? And then where was Elaine, you know, in her age, can you kind of walk us through some of that evidence you were able to develop? Yeah, well, one of the tricks, tricky things in, in this case, and I'm sure in, in, in your cases as well, and maybe in, in other people's cases, is when you've got a lot of good documents and you, you, you have to be careful that you don't try your case just by showing the jury a bunch of documents. Right. Um, that you've got to tell a story and then pepper your story with the documents that support your story but not to let your story get bogged down by the documents. And in this case, there are literally millions of documents 
Um, and we, you know, we cherry, I think my exhibit list has several thousand documents on it. Um, and I use over a hundred documents at trial, but you have to be very selective. And so the sort of narrative of the story that we tell just for the, the audience out there is that before 1953, there was some question as to, is there an association between smoking and, and cancer? We don't know. It maybe there is. And then there three very important studies came out in 1953 that were very strong showing uh, the link between smoking and cancer. And on that, when those first hit the press, they made, because at that point, over 50% of Americans smoked. And so it made national news when these studies came out and the tobacco industry, the, the big companies, there were six big companies, Laura Lard, R.J. Reynolds, uh, Brown and Williamson, they were scared because they were like, what's going to happen? And they all met in this sort of meeting of competitors at the Plaza Hotel and formed a conspiracy. And the conspiracy was to deny it to deny the, the truth of the evidence. And they spent millions of dollars on fake research and on a publicity campaign. And that was in 1954, moving forward on into the 60s. And they fought every regulation that the government came up with. And and, and, and just enormous public um, uh, out, you know, outreach to try and convince people that, well, the jury's still out about this. It's not really that clear. And we show a lot of the, 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 the publicity uh, campaign, the public relations campaign, and because that all became public in the secret archives that, that were found then. Um, and so then you just sort of tell this story of how long it took for anybody in the tobacco industry to admit it. Um, in, in, and then finally, we show this really great um, clip from congressional hearings in 1994 when every head of every tobacco company raised their hand in front of Congress and said that our product is not addictive. Yeah. And they had internal documents that we are showing at the same time to the jury that every single one of them's own internal documents said, we know it is addictive. And they're swearing to Congress that it wasn't. And that was in- so things like that. Yeah. That was in 1994? Yes. That is crazy. I mean- It's I crazy. It's, I feel like a lot of people who don't, who don't know as much um, as you know, obviously, like they think that, that all that tobacco stuff came out so much longer ago. They think that it's been over for such a long time. Like that just blows my mind. Yes, it's, it, they, the tobacco industry did not first admit that, that smoking caused cancer until the year 2000. That's the first year that they publicly admitted it. Um, wow. And that was, of course, after the Engel trial, because during the Engel trial, they tried to convince the jury it didn't. And then, of course, they had to go through very, um, and, and, you know, credit to those lawyers who fought, fought, fought to get those documents turned over um, and really gave us this treasure trove. Because finally, when the courts began to see a little bit of the iceberg, they're like, turn it all over. And uh, some great stuff came out. Gotcha. Yeah, and and if I remember right from reading some of your transcript, I mean, they had this sort of uh, tobacco industry group, and I don't remember what the name of it was. But um, PIRC, Tobacco Industry Research Council, right, yeah. Right, right. And, uh, and, and you had some documents where at least some of them, I thought uh, some of their internal documents said, you know, Dow is our product. This is what we're yeah. trying to sell to the public. 
Yeah, that was one of the best documents. Um, and, and it was actual, that document was actually written by a lawyer. Um, and some very, Shakardi was involved in a lot of the, Shakardi was the tobacco industry's big lawyer, law firm. And, um, and they're still representing them to this day. But that's a, we, you know, we were able to get, and they, obviously they uh, asserted attorney-client privilege, but that the fraud exception, um, you know, made those all admissible and all of that stuff comes in and it's, it's really, and like I said, it's, there's so much there that you run the risk of overwhelming the jury. So we, we really try very hard not to tell the story through the documents. We try and tell it through our witnesses and then pepper it with the documents. Right. And that's where a timeline comes in. So, uh, right. so useful because it's, an, it's a good way to put it together so that the jury can sort of see how this story develops. But uh, we, we have a saying around the office when you, you know, you talk about all of these documents and what is the jury going to latch on to is that when you're looking through these, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of documents that if it doesn't jump out at you, it's definitely not going to jump out at the jury. So, right. uh, you know, you got to make sure that the documents you have are, you know, a, a boil it down so that they are, you know, all impactful. And we also have, I think you probably agree with this, that you have to have your technology seamless because the jury's just not going to have patience if you're fumbling for something or if you pull up a document. So we, we use trial director and we've pre-highlighted all of our, you know, exhibits so that when the witness is talking about them, that we can put them then up and they're already highlighted. Nobody has to search for them. And, and, and I think that's important too, because you are giving them so much information to make it a smooth ride through there. So Laura, when you were, you know, tying this, when you were making this timeline, basically where you're pointing to these advertisements and you're saying, you know, you know, Miss Jordan at that time is 13 and was she, was your client like in, in good enough health to sit through the whole trial? Was she there with you every day? She, she was there with us most days. Some days she was sick and couldn't come, but she gotcha. was, she did sit with us most days, you know, with her oxygen there. And how did and, she handle it? Did, you know, was she, was she getting, was she mad? Did she already know it all? You know, what? it's interesting to, to say that because I think it's a, that's a, it's a good lesson I learned um, at one point we were arguing to the jury, we were arguing to the judge, my client sitting there and we were talking about the number of, um, uh, lung transplants that she had gotten. And one of our experts actually says that she's not going to get another lung transplant and they only last seven to 10 years. And so I can't remember why, but that was an important point that we were arguing to the, ju to the judge about and I'm just arguing, right, not realizing that I'm talking about her life. Right. right. Um, and I turned to her, and she's just broken down in tears. And I, it, it was a, a moment of me saying, Laura, you know, you know, take a step back here. And from then on, I actually try very hard. If I'm going to argue something like that, I excuse my client from the courtroom. Absolutely. Um, uh, because obviously I think I'm, I'm, per, I'm a person first. Right. Uh, and, but she, she did sit through it. She was a, just a terrific client. Um, and just a, a, a really, really sweet person. And, and I think that came across in the, um, in, in her testimony, they tried every way to cross examine her. There were some inconsistencies and in some medical records she had filled out and we just did, I think, a, a nice job of letting the jury see 
who she was while they're trying to cross her about whether she wrote one date down instead of another date on a medical record when she had lung cancer, you know, I mean, COPD. So it was really quite, oh, and then there was another, um, yeah, she had had a nasal, um, her part of her face had been, had a nasal cancer on it. And we believed it was related, but the judge didn't let that in. So she kind of had a little bit disfigurement in her face too. So that was kind of terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could, that's cause I was wondering, cause I, th- I think it's easy. The situation you described, that's easy to do because you're still, you're still working for your client. That's why you're up there arguing. But I think, right. you, get, you know, you get into the documents or the issues and then you forget like this, you know, this might be really hard for my actual client to hear. Right. Right. And, and, and yeah, it was a lesson that I learned that day. So, Laura, one of the other things that I took away from this that, that you all did a, a great job in uh, was, and it goes along with the use of the timeline, but it, it seemed to me that one of the big defenses that, that the tobacco company was trying to argue to you or to the jury was that, uh, you know, basically everybody knew this was um, dangerous, that, that cigarettes cause cancer, and that she chose this, and this was really her choice, and you did, you know, using your timeline and the evidence you had, a great job of, of um, confronting, I think, both their experts and their um, corporate representatives that, well, you guys wouldn't even admit that this caused cancer until 2000. And, you know, and you're a big, you know, corporation that has lots of resources. And yet you expected a 14-year-old girl to be able to, you know, know that this was going to cause uh, cancer. Can you talk about yeah. it? I, I'd, love, I'd love that. One of the things that that I, I do for every case and, and I try and do it for this case too is to is to you know take a quiet look at what are they going to use what is their argument what are their themes going to be and how can I use their theme right right and how and so one of the and in the opening I was just rereading it so I remember now uh, he got up and said you know there's two sides to every story and Miss Champ's been talking for you know her whole opening about uh, what you know, the tobacco companies did, but there are two sides of this story. And then he starts telling how she made these choices on her own. And so then in closing, I came back and I said, you know, there are two sides to every story. And did you hear him talk about the, the other side about his own client's conduct? And so you try and like use that. And so I did that with choice as well. He talked about, you know, she made a choice and it's a personal choice. And we in, in tobacco cases, that's a, a big catchphrase. People say, well, it's his personal choice to do that. It's his personal choice to smoke. So we use the theme of choice and talked about the choices that the tobacco company made. They chose this path when they could have. And we use that word a lot in our, in our you know, slides during our opening and closing. What choices did they make? What choices did they do? So we tried to, you know, when you can, try and make their arguments and turn them so that they're uh, um, helpful to you. Um, and they really, they tried it every single i mean they they fought you on every single thing she she actually had been worked for a couple of years in a wood um you know in a lumber yard and they tried to bring in an expert um who argued that her copd was caused by exposure to uh wood dust it's just a ludicrous oh my God. Right, that's that's the uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis yes. pneumonitis and yeah Right. They had us chasing down that trail. And and you really have to walk a fine line, I think, as a plaintiff's lawyer, um, between not letting their arguments go unanswered, 
I think you have to answer their arguments, but not letting them pull you down into the rabbit hole of, of, of a ridiculous argument. And I, and I do believe we were able to show that that was a truly ridiculous argument. And, and ultimately, I think it hurt them to try and make that argument. So were they, they able, were they able to like, um, cause I always, I, I talk about this with, with, with Steve a lot and the, the people I work with where, you know, we'll go into certain type of products case and they'll, you know, they'll, the guys will tell me, you know, the other side's going to argue this and they'll sort of try to preemptively address it, you know, and you're in their opening or their initial argument. And I, every time I panic, cause I'm like, no, now that, now that they see what's coming, <laughs> you know, the defense is going to adapt and they never do. They just walk never. right into it. They walk right and, into it. Yeah. And so when you were kind of stealing their, um, you know, the tobacco lawyers, when you were stealing their terminology and their sort of their discussion about choice and the two sides of the story, did they adapt or did they just keep going with it? Um, I, you know, I think, I think they kept going with it because it's their, it's their playbook. But I will, I will talk about something interesting that I did try and do in this case because, and I think this is important in, in very serious cases, sometimes you'll, the defense lawyer in this case was extremely personable and that was part of his stick right he right. he would say good morning to the jury and he would he would and and we knew this because we we had gotten the intel on it before and so we filed a motion in limine on it and and we said your honor you know this sort of you know talking to the jury and ingratiating himself like that is inappropriate and the judge is like she backed up to me she's Miss Champ everybody has a right to say good morning right and I was like, all right, but that set the stage so that when he started to do it, she would call him down on it. When he, right. when, and at one point, like it was somebody's birthday um, and the judge had mentioned, um, you know, oh, it's somebody's birthday on the jury. And then he says to the jury, oh, I want to say, have, the judge says, Mr. Coffer, no, you know. And, and I think that set the, it would allow, it allowed me to set more of a tone of seriousness to the case right. where he wanted to make it a tone of, oh, we're here having cupcakes. Right. Um, and, and my style is a very, very, it's a sort of a serious style. Right. And, and I think that, I think that that's sort of important to set that kind of a, a, a mood amongst the jury that, that you're taking this very seriously. And almost with, he starts doing the frivolity when you've got a person so sick next to you. So mm -hmm. I thought that was a good, a good thing we did was to call him out early on that kind of thing. And if he did too much of it, you know, when the jury's not there, we would, you know, sell, tell the judge and it, he didn't like it. He got mad at me because he, because <laughs> it was part of his thing, right? right. It was part of his right. thing to do it. And uh, so it threw him off his game a little bit. I love that. Um, Laura, so one of the other things I saw in here and I'd like to hear you talk about is um, in your jury charges, I think you were allowed to argue um, what conspirator evidence was and um, it, to talk about what the other tobacco companies had done. And that all uh, got into evidence. Is that right? Yeah. So because there is a, there was a conspiracy claim in there, we were able to not just talk about the conduct of Philip Morris, but talk about the conduct of these other defendants as well, R.J. Reynolds and Laura Lard and some of these other companies. And that became important because, for example, youth marketing was a big deal, like the good documents about, you know, appealing to youth. Well, Philip Morris didn't have as many, we didn't, we couldn't find as many good youth marketing documents for them, but we had great ones from R.J. Reynolds. 
And so it all came in. And the jury, once we start talking about big tobacco and tobacco manufacturers, they didn't distinguish, right? right. It was, and which is fair because this was a conspiracy. And they conspired together to present this certain image. And, um, and so we were able to get all of that evidence in, which I think was very useful. We, um, we put on that evidence through one big witness. He was on the stand for two days. His name is Dr. Proctor, and he's a, it's a specialty that I had not heard of, which is he's a historian of science. Oh, wow. And he studies the ways in which science happens in history. You know, what do we know when? How do we, when did we know cancer? Uh, you know, what causes cancer? When do we know that, you know, hand washing is good? He studies that, and he's at Stanford. He was at Harvard. He's very, very credentialed. And he's written like three books on the tobacco companies. So he real and he's he's very personable and and he sits on the stand and tells the story um, from his research. And so that he's a a, a very very good witness and um, and very knowledgeable about all of the documents. He's looked at you know millions of documents and written books about it and all these things. The downside is is that uh, oddly enough he picks that being a historian of science. That these tobacco cases come up and he's made a ton of money doing it. Right. So he gets, we get a big hit with that, with how much money he's made uh, testifying around the world. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it sounds like putting him on the stand is a great way to sort of, you know, lay the groundwork for the story you're going to tell the jury and just sort of uh, put it all right. Is he one of your first witnesses that you call? Yes. He's, he's usually one of the, one of the first, we also call a Dr. Burns who is one of the authors of the Surgeon General reports. Um, he was act he's actually one of the main authors of 17 of the Surgeon General reports, and he's a pulmonologist. And he comes in and talks about, uh, he's a public, a public health expert too. And so he talks about what we knew when, but he also talks about the science behind cancer causation, which is fast, juries are on the edge of their seat because they don't really know how smoking causes cancer. And he teaches us how it does and how smoking causes COPD. And it's very fascinating. He's got slides and, and talks about that story. And he's so credible because he is one of the you know, authors of the Surgeon General's report. Um, and so we tell the story through him and through them. And then we also tell it through the um, – we have videotaped depositions of corporate representatives and we pepper it with, with their admissions of what they knew as well. And those are those can be very effective, but also you have to be careful how long they go because they can be boring too. Right, right. yeah. I mean, corporate rep right. representative depositions are some of your most powerful tools at trial. Of just, uh, you know, saying when you tell the jury in opening what they're going to hear, you know, tell them you, you don't have to believe me about it. You're going to hear it straight right. from their own representatives. And straight from their own represent and, and their own documents and those kind of things I think are, are really critical. Yeah. So, and then I, I saw in there that um, the term, so one of the things you had to prove for an Ingalls case was whether or not they were addicted. And um, it seemed like that you spent a, a good amount of time explaining to the jury what exactly it means to be a, addicted and more importantly, what it, what it doesn't mean. Right. So that's the big, that's the big uh, line that the defendants try and hold. They try and hold that line as to whether the plaintiff was addicted or not and, and make it far more complicated. And then, and unfortunately for us, there is a, in the DSM-5, 
um, there is a definition of nicotine addiction and it's very, you know, detail oriented and it's very easy for the defendants to go crazy cross-examining us on it. Um, and so we really do try and spend a lot of time on addiction but addiction is a complicated thing for a plaintiff's lawyer because every single person on that jury has some experience with addiction. You know, right. somebody in their family, a loved one, has has been addicted to something. And then some people don't believe in addiction. Some people just think, oh, those are just weak people. And so you, you do want to explore right. all of that in Voidire, uh, people's feelings about addiction and their own personal experiences with addiction and and what it means. And then we have to do a really good job of teaching them about the science behind addiction. Um, and like I said, one of the things we do is we use, um, we've got some MRI and brain scans that we put up that shows the brain on addiction. And then we have, you know, nicotine receptors in the brain and really get, get pretty scientific about the physical concepts of addiction and what it means. Did you show the MRI scans of uh, Lane Jordan's? Uh, no, okay. no, just, just in general experimental yeah. subjects, right? Experimental subject. And then, but w w one of the, I think, interesting things is we talk about the, the, the child's, uh, uh, an adolescent's brain, and we show scans of that and how the prefrontal cortex is not developed yet. And you can see that development. And when you add a substance to an uh, uh, adolescent's brain, how those neuropathways neuro are stronger and they're it's much harder to quit if you start smoking before the age of 16. Right. Those are kind so, of, that's, that's kind of fun. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. So logistically, how does it work as far as you've got these things that you need to prove to show that your client is a, is a member of the Engel class, but are you doing everything and then finding out at one time, basically, whether the jury decided, is it bifurcated? Like, you know what I'm you know, yes, out. I do. No, it's um, it, it's not bifurcated. It's well, it's bifurcated. It's a punitive damages, but class membership and liability is all decided in one phase. Got it. And so the, you don't even know until until you get to that first sort of deliberation and verdict whether they've even decided whether your client's a member of the class. Right. Right. Class membership is the is the first question on the form, and if they check no, then they 
you know, sign the verdict form and hand it in. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's a, but I, I just like anything else when it, when it comes to those things, you've got to convince them of your story so that they want to check. Yes. Right. right. You, you, they want to check. Yes. On the, the addiction. Uh, they even put this, the, it's a little complicated in the way that the addiction question is written. And the way it's written is, is was Elaine Jordan addicted to cigarettes and did her addiction cause her disease? So it's sort of a weird question. So what they, they sometimes admit that she's addicted, but then they'll say, but that's not why she smoked. She smoked because she chose not to quit. (laughs) So they'll, they'll, they'll use semantics like that um, during trial. And you really have to, you have to combat that kind of language and, in, in our case, I tend to be very aggressive in closing arguments or in opening arguments if they misstate what the, the criterion is on the jury form when they're arguing. You know, most of the time, and most of the time we don't object a lot to closings, but when tobacco companies tend to want to really stretch that line, then I'll, I'll hold them to the, to the fire on that kind of thing and object. Gotcha. Gotcha. So is, was the verdict form something that they use in all those cases? It's just a standard one you're stuck with? It, no, it's, it's a little different, but it's every, every case they, they modify it a little bit. Um, and it depends on which county. We're trying this in Duval County, but these cases have been tried all over. Duval has standard jury instructions, which are great because then you don't have to argue quite as much. But Dade counties might be a little bit different and, and other counties that we've, Brevard and, and other counties we've tried them in. But it's basically that first question, some, something around was she addicted and did it, her addiction cause her disease? Got it. And then, of course, that's when they, they started arguing about the wood, wood dust and those kind of things as well. Got it. So, uh, Laura, when you were putting this case together, did you use uh, focus groups? And if you were, how are those uh, how are those going for you? No, we didn't use focus groups. So this, I have tried. Um, this was my biggest verdict, but I've tried six Ingle uh, cases. Okay. Um, down there, and I uh, I work with another uh, law firm that's also tried six, and and I provide support when they're trying theirs, and they provide support when I'm trying mine. So we've we've had a lot of experience just on our own, and 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 so we've had enough jury trials that that we don't need to focus these. We kind of know what the issues are, sort of. But no, we we didn't we didn't use a focus group. But the uh, tobacco the people who are trying these Ingle cases also have a list serve. So all and they collect data on just about everything and they um, what kinds of cases are winning, what kinds of cases are not winning. This one, which we call a living smoker, is unusual. Um, and I, I'm trying to think of it's I think it's my only living smoker case. Most of the time, the smokers died. Right. And so you're bringing a case by, from their, by their spouse or by their child. And the living smoker cases are much better because she can tell that story herself about how many times she tried to quit. Right. Um, and that's super important in these cases that is that, that a real struggle with trying to quit because the jury, if the jury thinks that you're just out buying their cigarettes because you, you like to smoke, you're not going to win. You've, you've got to get this, struggle across with the trying to quit and she did and one going back to the timeline piece that you talked about earlier one timeline piece that we loved in this case was the Nicorette gum so Nicorette was the very first anti-smoking or um, 
aid to help people stop smoking. Right. And Dow Corning um, invented it. And it just come out with it. And it was everybody was super excited about it when we had the internal documents from Philip Morris, who bought a bunch of chemicals from Dow Corning to make their cigarettes. And they said, stop marketing that product or we are going to stop buying Dow Corning. And Dow You're Corning stopped. Kidding. No, oh I'm God. not. It's so much worse than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and that was, I think the jury almost took in a breath when we showed those documents that said, you know, and this was the first one, the first thing to help people try and quit. And they wanted to, they wanted to suppress it. That is and shocking. So we, and so we tied that timeline to her efforts to quit. This is the same time she's trying and she's got nothing. She doesn't have Nicorette. It's not available. It's not marketed. It, they kept it from going to market for over a year by doing that with Dow Corning. That is so, because that to me is like, you know, hiding that it's addictive and all of that is one thing, but like trying so to- So you would be a good juror, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to keep people from taking measures to quit, right. like interfering with that, that is bananas. Right. And so then you see how it's important then to tie your own client to her efforts to quit and then them suppressing it. So when she's trying to quit and she, you know, she testified to it, there wasn't anything. And people, young people don't know that, that the patch, I mean, the gum first comes out in 93, the patch doesn't come out until 96. Um, you know, back when people are trying to quit in the eighties and nineties, they had nothing. Right. Hypnotism. And she was, she finally was able to, people tried hypnotism, people tried water filters, people tried a lot of different things, but she was able to finally quit using Chantex. Okay. Yeah. Which of course is new. Right. Yeah. My, that's what my cousin used too, which it's like, I, you look at the, I don't know a lot about it, but you look at the side effects for that drug and it's like, man, that, even that feels like a risky choice. Sure. It is. Yeah. And so, um, can you talk a little bit about damages, Laura? You uh, so I know we talked about the fact that she had two lung transplants, and and that's right. obviously serious. But one of the other things that I found interesting is that there was she had or needed to have a kidney transplant. Can you talk about that as well? Right. So the we did something nice, I think, with our with our damages, um, and and this is this is something most people can do if they've got big numbers. So her medical expenses were close to two million. Just you know, with these two transplants, um, the kidney, and we were able to keep in the kidney transplant, even though they tried to get it out because that was caused. Her kidney failure was caused by her, the drug she had to take to prevent her uh, lungs from being rejected, the, the anti-rejection drugs. But we actually um, did a summary of the, the two million dollars, but we put the actual bills together in notebooks. And so while she was on the stand. And they were these enormous notebooks, literally stacked up three feet high. So I, you know, at some point at the end of her testimony, I, I, you know, take these notebooks and I put them up there one at a time. And I said, are these your medical bills? And it was really, I, I think it was really powerful when she, when you see the, the amount of med, the treatment that she had, um, you know, for this. So uh, we, so they, they gave us, um, I think two and a half million for past pain and suffering, two and a half million for you know, current pain and suffering, two million for our um, medical expenses. So all different categories there um, that added up to the seven and a half, I think, for the compensatory damages 
And then we went to the punitive phase. And um, in the punitive phase, I was able to argue that uh, one day of cigarette sales in the United States was 22 million. Um, 22 wow. million for one day of cigarette sales in the United sure. States. So I asked a um, so I asked them to give us one day, asked them to give us 22. And what they did in the punitive phase was they added 3 million to my 7 million to give me a total of 11 million, which was, uh, uh, maybe now I'm wrong. I'm wrong. 22 million was two days. So they gave me one day of cig okay. cigarette sales, which was 11 million total, um, which I thought was clever of them. Um, would, yeah, juries like to do stuff like that, especially when, you know it's it's their own sense of justice. Did, which leads me to: Did you get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards? No, you in Florida it's forbidden. Oh man. Yeah, in Florida you can't talk to them. You can't approach them. You can't, um, and so you you don't get a, a chance to talk to them afterwards. But I will say um, a couple things happened during the uh, course of the trial. You're there for three weeks. And we really liked our alternate. Um, we, I guess we had two alternates. We really liked both of our alternates. And there was uh, two people in the jury that we did not like. Um, and, and they were very almost flirty with each other, uh, sort of <laughs> weirdly. Uh, during, and at one point, um, we're passing notes. And so we raised that with the judge and said, you know, we don't know what they're doing, but if they're, if they're commenting upon the evidence, it's, it's wrong. Um, and so the judge called him in and sort of said, what are you doing? And, and sort of scolded him. And then the next day, one of them didn't show up. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so oh, we got our alternate on, um, which we, which we thought was really good. But the, 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 the four person was a, was military female, um, sort of, and w was very strong the whole time in this sort of looking like she was there to do justice. And uh, we really liked her. I don't know if you, you guys typically like military on your juries, but, um, but she was really fantastic. I, I mean, I personally, I usually like uh, military. I mean, obviously, there's always exceptions. But, um, you know, when it comes to if you're setting out the rules and you're setting out right. mm -hmm. what, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, I mean, that's, that's their life, is they know if you break a rule, if you don't follow a rule, then people get hurt, people die. Um, so I usually find them to be uh, pretty good. And then, of course, in, in tobacco case, we've got nice little evidence, uh, military evidence, because um, the tobacco companies contracted with the government to put um, free cigarettes in all of their rations. It's unbelievable now to think about, but in, in their in World War II, in their in their rations with their with their food was were cigarette packs. Yeah, so, some of the evidence in this is just crazy, and I, I feel like we need to spend a little bit of time talking more about that because one of the things you and I talked about ahead of time, Laura, uh, was that they had a uh, uh, one of the pictures that they had was the uh, astronauts, you know, these the people who are sort of the cream of the crop, um, you know, that are going to go into space, you know, great physical condition, and they are all smoking, and that, um, you know, and, and one thing I didn't think about is, you know, why in every car is there an ashtray and a cigarette lighter? Um, I mean, some of the evidence in this is just fascinating. Yeah. So one one of the things that that we talked a lot about was it's sort of the cigarettes came about at a really sort of unique time in history. People have, have used tobacco products for for generations. And Christopher Columbus, there's 
that people were using tobacco in native Indians were using tobacco. But because of the heart, the pH level of tobacco in cigars or in pipes, you can't inhale it into your lungs. Right. It's not inhalable. But in the late 1800s, they invented flu curing, which lowered the pH and then was the invention of cigarettes where they inhaled them into the lung, which made them unique. And, and in what part of our evidence that we put on is that they could increase the pH so that people couldn't inhale cigarettes and get lung cancer would go away, uh, caused by smoking, would go away if they just made them not inhalable. And is the reason to make them not, I mean, to make them so you can inhale is because it increases the addiction with the nicotine? It, it increases the delivery of the nicotine. So when the nicotine is inhaled, and we talked about, we talk about that too, that of all the ways in which you can get drugs into your system, the fastest is to inhale it. It hits your, it hits your brain, the nicotine hits your brain in less than six seconds. And then we talked about what other drug do you dose? And, you know, there's 20 puffs on a cigarette. That's 20 doses. And there's 20 cigarettes in a pack. And that's, you know, 400 doses per pack of your drug that people are sometimes doing two packs a day. It, it is such a strong addiction because of the way it is dosed. So, um, yeah, that, this, this, that, that's one of the things we talk a lot about, about the science. Um, but the what the defendants present is they say everybody's always known that smoking was hazardous and so we have we had to show a culture around cigarette smoking that most people in 2017 are not aware of and we tried to do that with a lot of images of of people that you you would be shocked like the Flintstones for example you know, images of, and, and today people, are you kidding me? There are pic- there's advertisements where they have babies smoking. Um, they're just crazy stuff. Um, and you have to, so the idea is to make the jury, take, take the jury back to those times. There in, in 1928, every, there's an advertisement that said every single Yankee, sm- you know, professional athletes, every single Yankee smokes Lucky Strikes. And and these things were true. Football players, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was a, a Chesterfield advertiser. Yes, I know. And so, right. And right. so we have to. We showed that, and then the defense was everybody knew, and they would cherry pick out and put out little. You know, there there was an article here. Or there's a. Um, there's just some great evidence. There's a piece of you know, news here that says smoking did cause cancer. But one of the things that we, we put up some public documents which show that the like smoking clearinghouse, the PSAs, says that um, the National Clearinghouse, of, which was um, uh, the public service announcements against smoking, uh, they, uh, cigarette advertisers spent more on advertising cigarettes in one day than the budget for all the anti-smoking for a year. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, and so it, it, the amount of advertising we had to try and convey to the jury, and then we had to then, then try and convey to the jury a, a combination. She got hooked before she knew, and once we convince them of that, then we've got to convince them that once she was hooked, that she tried very hard to quit, and that their efforts to prevent her from quitting, like, for example, the Nicorette gum example, that they were actively trying to stop her from quitting. 
And then at the same time, there's all these things that said people are these sort of industry documents where said the problem is some people are quitting, so we need to hook more children, uh, or else we're gonna we're gonna lose uh, you know product if we if we, if we don't sell them. But um, so it's there, there's a lot of different uh, themes to try and put out there, and and I think this case was a good example of being able to show that the defendant's misconduct and then a very deserving plaintiff and the combination of those two is what ended up with a good result, I think. Jeez, it just sounds like all the tobacco companies are run by Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, the, but, but, the, but again, the, the, what the defendants say is those are all, that's all old news, right? That right. was in 1950. None of those people are at the company any longer. These people that, um, uh, oh, and there's just some evil pictures of them smoking and saying, there's one we love called the applesauce commercial, the applesauce advertising, where he says, um, it, one of the executives, and they say, we know the studies now show that, um, that smoking causes cancer. What do you say? He says, well, anything can cause cancer if you, if you use too much of it. Applesauce can cause cancer. <laughs> and the interviewer says, I don't think people are dying from applesauce. And he goes, maybe they're not eating enough applesauce. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, so we play those things and the jury's just like, oh my gosh, these are bad people. But then you have to, you have to combine it because like I said, people walk in thinking that tobacco companies are bad. I mean, um, you have to couple it with a deserving plaintiff to, to get a good result. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and I think just like, you know, the point you made earlier, which is tying into what, you know, the society was like back at the time that your client was growing up and and what they, what she was faced with. And it's, it's not the same as what we're, uh, as how it is today. I mean, one of the things that you said in there was that um, in 1960, I think you said that 60% of doctors smoked. Um, So it's just, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, if you see your doctor smoking, you see your astronaut smoking, you see the military smoking. I mean, it, it, why is a 14-year-old girl supposed to figure out the smoking is bad for you? Oh, yeah, I didn't tell that, that piece. So we, we show a clip of the Mercury astronauts when they're selected. It's a news a newsreel. We've selected these people, to the, the Mercury 7, and on the news clip, like four of the seven are smoking cigarettes at the table where they're being announced. Yeah. And these are and these are our best and our brightest. I mean, these are our, supposedly our physical specimens that they don't think that smoking is harmful to them. Right, right. And exactly. um, and so that I, things images like that that we have to continue to show. Um, but again, I, I think jury selection is super important in these cases because you have to get a jury that is willing to um, to put themselves in that time frame and 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 go back to what the. Uh, the situation was like back then. So how long does it take to get a jury in a case like this? It takes us three days. So we do, um, we do a questionnaire uh-huh. and they fill out the questionnaire on day one and then we do hardships. And then on day two and day three, it's for dire. Um, and, and there's sort of interesting, we've gone, I've gone through different changes in my brain. For one, the, um, we used to, I used to end the jury selection tell the jury about the Engel findings because they're so powerful. You want to say them a hundred times, right? It, it, it's like it, if you have something so good. And so, you know, I, I started off with saying, now these are the Engel findings. Can everybody agree to that? They would, you know, um, use these findings, even if you were not the jury that found them and the judge will instruct you, you have to do it. Will everybody agree to do that? 
But what I learned was is that those Ingle findings were so powerful. They say things like the tobacco companies misrepresented the health risks of smoking. The tobacco companies lied about the addictive nature of smoking. The tobacco companies created a defective product. That when I told the jury about that and then the defendants got up, many of the jurors raised their hand and said that they were biased against the tobacco companies and those were struck for cause. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and so I tended to I, I tend I then I st- so I'm not I'm not going to do that anymore because I, right. I got to see that I was prejudicing my my jury against yeah. the tobacco company. And then they admitted it during the void hire. So then I, I stopped doing that. And it's sort of my my theory now. I try not to say hardly anything about the facts during void hire um, because I don't want my jury prejudging things. Uh, and now, you know, I want to try and see what their their feelings and beliefs are coming in without knowing any of the facts. So that was a change that that I did from earlier cases to this one. Um, well, uh, this has been uh, fantastic, Laura. We really appreciate it. Is there anything else from the, the trial um, that you would think it's important to talk to our audience about? I mean, it's um, this has been great. Um, well, I, I will say that like any good case that you have, they're expensive. Um, yeah, so we, we, we spend between 250 and $350,000 on each one. Wow. And you really, you know, as, as we figure out, you really can't spare expense when you're, when you're trying to put on a, a very good case. And so they're, they're very expensive. Um, but the, the plus side of that is, is that there's an offer of judgment statute in Florida and we always, um, send an offer of judgment very low they always reject it because they want to try them. So we get our attorney's fees and expenses on top of our 11 million. Oh, that's oh, fact. Nice. That's fantastic. So w- did you all send an offer of judgment in this case? Yes, we did. What did you uh, send for, it for? Uh, 120,000. Wow. Wow. They, they didn't take that. <laughs> they never take it. We, and we know that they they don't take it. And, um, and so, you know, we will get all of our expenses and all of our attorney's fees. On top of that, I say will because we just got affirmed on appeal. Um, so they appeal, every, the tobacco companies appeal every case. Right. So it went up to the uh, Florida Court of Appeals and the Florida Supreme Court, and it was um, you know, just affirmed by the Florida Supreme Court. They have 90 days to file a petition to the United States Supreme Court. And uh, hopefully they won't do that, and then we'll get paid. <laughs> oh wow! So it was so it's really recent. You're in that 90 day period right now. We're in the 90 day for them to file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Yep. Wow. Cool. Well, and they have they have appealed. Yeah. They have appealed many of them to the and then of course interest is running at a good clip. So I'm not um, we're not sweating it. However, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it's tough. Florida is much longer appellate process than Georgia is. Yeah. Because, you know, Georgia has those statutory requirements where they have to decide it and Florida doesn't. My client's very sick, and it would be great if she had this money instead of just waiting on it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, those are all good points. I mean, in any, you know, we, we always talk about that in any products case we take it. You know, every case is different, but, um, you know, products cases especially are, are just very expensive, and you know you're going to have to fight tooth and nail. Uh, and, um, and you really, you're exactly right. You really can't, uh, spare the expense because if you want to make an effective presentation, then, um, then you've got to be willing to, to put it out there. That's ab- absolutely right. And, and, and that's what we have to do in these cases. And, 
And, and, and of course, we've been trying them. And so as one, some of them have gotten paid over time, then we use that money to fund the next one. So, right. so eventually, the way we think of it now is tobacco is now paying for our trials. <laughs> right, right. Well, good. Well, well, yes. um, well, that's great. Well, Laura, we really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, well, this has been delightful. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, tell everybody how they can reach you if, they'd, uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you. Um, you can reach our, our firm is Champ Jordan Woodward. So we're on the internet and you can reach us at um, champjordanwoodward.com or, you know, 404-893-9400. We're always uh, here. I do mostly, most of my work is medical malpractice. Right. Um, so I do big complex medical malpractice cases mostly. So these products cases, the uh, tobacco cases are a, a sideline. Right, right. Well, it's a, yeah, it's, it's just a hobby for you. You've done well. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank um, you, Laura. This was so awesome. Uh, well, I think the truth is is that trying a case is is trying a case, right? Whatever the subject is, the 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 strengths of of putting on a good trial, whether it's a products case, a a, a trucking case, a med mal case, they're very similar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the things that um, that you can learn. About, I mean. You have to alter it somewhat for every case and, and you should always, I, I never like to reuse, you know, things I like to come at every case fresh, but, uh, but there are definitely uh, themes and, and definitely uh, uh, things you can do in every case that will uh, help you down the road. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.